I'm Max Kaiser. This is the Kaiser Report. You made it! See? Well, Max, Davos ended yesterday, and you noticed who didn't attend, and that was Donald Trump, anybody from his cabinet, or, in fact, Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, or Theresa May, the prime minister of the United Kingdom. Why? Because there's domestic uprising in all of those places and domestic chaos. Uh, there's no government in, uh, well, there was no government in the United States. Uh, Macron is uh, facing <laughs> the end of his government, and Macron and May, of course, is facing the end of Britain as we know it. Well, it plays into a big theme. We've been talking about de-dollarization, de-globalization. Davos is a huge organization for globalization. All the big globalizers, the globalists, they go to Davos and they talk about their globalist agenda. But because they're in a de-globalization era and de-dollarization era, you know, naturally these folks don't go to Davos because it's outlived its purpose. Well, I predicted to our editor who does work up at Davos, and he, I said to him, you know what? I predict that in 2020, there will be a no Davos held, not as we know it. Perhaps it may be occupied by the Gilets Jaunes, by the Indignado, and by the Deplorables. It may be a whole new Davos if they want to continue um, basically surviving in any form of, of what this, uh, what this organization, re you know, represents. No, if you want the smartest minds and you want the coolest weather and you want the greatest experience at a conference ever, you got to go to Crypto Springs. <laughs> I went last year in Palm Springs and that's like the new, that's where all the cool kids are going. They're not going to Davos. That's for has-beens and old jerks. Yep, that's true. And um, speaking of the Gilets Jaunes, I would like to turn to this headline, which I thought was just fantastic. It was an interview in Spiked Online with, um, I'm going to try to pronounce his name. It's a French name, so uh, it's not going to be perfect. Nevertheless, his name is Christophe Gouilly, and he is a thinker and an author, and he uh, was interviewed about the Gilets Jaunes are unstoppable, he said, and he is uh, writing about the cultural divide among the Yellow Vest. And back in 2014, geographer Christopher Guy, study of La France Périphérique, the peripheral France, caused a media sensation. It drew attention to the economic, cultural, and political exclusion of the working classes most of whom now live outside the major cities. It highlighted the conditions that would later give rise to the yellow vest phenomenon. Guayi has developed on these themes in his recent books, No Society and the Twilight of the Elite, Prosperity, the Periphery, and the Future of France. Yeah, well, the Gilets Jaunes movement is unstoppable. It started with Occupy Wall Street and it continued through the Arab Spring and it's continued through ever major protest movement, anti-globalization protest movement. That's what they used to call it. They used to call it anti-globalization protests. And then it became Occupy Wall Street, then it became the Gilets Jaunes. became the Indignado. The Indignados. In Spain. Right. And so it's all connected. And it's been building now for 10, 15 years and uh, in a big way. And it's just getting stronger and stronger because the forces that prompt this global insurrection against banker occupation, or Giabo, are not relinquishing their control. As a matter of fact, they're doubling down on their money printing, their lawlessness, their um, 
flagrant abuse of human rights. Uh, so it's uh, coming to a head. So just as I said about, I doubt there will be a Davos in 2020 because, as he wrote, the twilight of the elite. It's the end of their days. It's over. That's what I'm saying is that it, their days are over. Their days are numbered. And that's why you may see at 2020 Davos, if there is some sort of remnants of it, it will be headed by the gilets jaunes, the indignados, and the deplorables. But why... They, why this? Why he was able to forecast this, just like we were able to forecast this back in 2014. He said, technically, our globalized economic model performs well. It produces a lot of wealth. But it doesn't need the majority of the population to function. It has no real need for the manual workers, laborers, and even small business owners outside of the big cities. Paris creates enough wealth for the whole of France, and London does the same for Britain, but you cannot build a society around this. The gilet jaune is a revolt of the working classes who live in these places. Yeah, like we've said, they don't need taxpayers, because if you print money at the central bank whenever you need it, you don't, you know, the tax money you collect is a drop in the bucket. They don't really do anything with it. Uh, so, therefore, they have no rights. And uh, I mean, you look around the world and you see charts about the number of the percentage of the global population that has fallen out of abject poverty. Um, but that's with an incredible cost. Uh, the cost has been the transference of power to a plutocracy, a concentration of wealth in the very one, top 1% 1 of 1% and an environmental disaster. And so it's unsustainable. So yeah, they've thrown a bone to someone making a dollar a day who's now making $5 a day, and they're like, see, aren't we great? We're virtue signaling. We're in Davos. That person was eating dirt last year. Now they're living on $3 a day. We're fantastic. Well, until the unsustainability factor kicks in and you're being chased down the street with an angry, by an angry mob. Well, he talks about this virtue signaling in the Davos sort of crowd because, you know, the economic stuff, we've already reported on that. You and I have mentioned this for years, and we kind of reported on this gilet jaune and how those outside of London and Paris and all the metropolitan elites that they uh, suffer more. But he talks about the cultural impact and, and what we're seeing culturally. And that is an important divide, he says, that we're really seeing now. And this, he points out that one illustration of this cultural divide is that most modern progressive social movements and protests are quickly endorsed by celebrities, actors, the media, and the intellectuals. But none of them approve of the gilet jaune. Their emergence has caused a kind of psychological shock to the cultural establishment. It is exactly the same shock that the British elites experienced with the Brexit vote and that they are still experiencing now, three years later. The shock by the cultural establishment to the cultural establishment is something that we've talked about here as well, post-Trump. This post-Trump uh, derangement syndrome is exactly the same symptom, is that, you know, when France uh, elected Macron. Remember, in America, the media was like ecstatic, over the top, euphoric, and saying like, he's our guy, he's like Beto, he's like Obama, he's like, like sexy and sophisticated and says all the right things and signals his virtue. But the people are rising up against him because they, the elite, don't understand at all, still, all the time, partly because they've had the comfort, the sweet, sweet comfort of a conspiracy theory that it's, you know, some guy living thousands of miles away in the Kremlin who has some sort of mind control over everybody in their population. But the fact is, 
these people, uh, there's a cultural divide in our own countries. Yeah, you make an interesting point about the celebrities, you know, because you've had greenwashing and whitewashing and bluewashing, referring to, let's say, Exxon stealing images from Greenpeace to push their agenda, for example, they greenwash, we know what that means, bluewashing, where you're using the UN to virtue signal something that maybe is not entirely wholesome. Then there's celebrity washing. You know, you could get some frickin' celebrity to come out and uh, be part of your social justice warrior movement, but we haven't seen any of that with the Gilets jaunes uh, because uh, that's not about virtue signaling, it's about an insurrection against them themselves. So like the elite will say, oh my God, women can drive in Saudi Arabia. I feel so amazing. This is so cool. Oh, remember the, all those women with the purple fingers in Afghanistan? I feel so cool. But there's no cost to them whatsoever about signaling about what happens in a country over which they have no control at all, that they have no influence at all, other than the bombs, of course, that they drop. But Spiked Online asked this guy, Christophe Guy, he, they asked what role as a liberal metropolitan elite played in this. And he said, quote, we have a new bourgeoisie, but because they are very cool and progressive, it creates the impression that there is no class conflict anymore. It is really difficult to oppose the hipsters when they say that they care about the poor and about minorities, but actually they are very much complicit in relegating the working classes to the sidelines. Not only do they benefit enormously from the globalized economy, these elites, but they have also produced a dominant cultural discourse which ostracizes working class people. Think of the deplorables evoked by Hillary Clinton. There is a similar view of the working class in France and Britain. They are looked upon as if they are some kind of Amazonian tribe. The problem for the elites is that it is a very big tribe. Right, this word bourgeois, you know, hasn't been part of the lexicon in quite some time. That's since probably Marx's day. Uh, it was as of now we're popping up and we're seeing social Marxism, social, um, you know, what does Cortez talk about, OCB, social democracy, uh, kind of a socialist, uh, Marxist light. Social Democrats. Social Democrats, right? So they, they, they're fighting the bourgeois, effectively. And uh, so this is class war. And uh, of course, in the UK, class war never went away. And it, now it's just becoming more entrenched. In, in the United States, we haven't had tr class war before. We've had economic war, but we haven't had class war like we're having now. Yeah, I mean... Okay, Martin Luther King Jr. did specifically, and nobody, none of the virtue signalers on MSNBC or CNN will ever point to what he said economically, what he talked about the economic um, structure that was benefiting a certain elite around the world and these imperial wars and our actions as an empire around the world, how it benefited, like that was to him primary over racial issues, that it was all part of that story of the economic suppression and the economic system that was um, the bigger story. But now we've, uh, as the, he mentions, these hipsters feel like, you know, I have, you know, 15 bathrooms there for all, they're all whatever gender you are, you could use any of them and th therefore I'm good and I can't possibly be an oppressor. I can't be benefiting from an oppressive system. So that, because I am so good, like I, I, I feel like a good person. But a lot of the, by the way, a lot of the religious folk who in the 18th century or the 17th century went to the United States, went to Africa, went to Latin America to free the people, the savages, from their, you know, their savagery. They really felt good about what they were doing too. They felt they were just like 
good, honest, hardworking Christian people, and they were just bringing greatness, you know, and, and helping these people. But in fact, what they brought was devastation, and, and they were a privileged class to be able to do this. All right. Well, I mean, look, Marie Antoinette, right? She said, you know, um, when told that the people had no bread, she was so clueless that she said, well, what about brioche or, or cake, you know? She wasn't being, like, just being mean. She was actually being stupid. She was a moron. Right? So these people like, you know, the social justice warriors in America's bourgeois are stupid. They're morons. And that's what they're going to lead to their, um, you know, uh, Let's come end. back in the second half and talk more about that, Max, because I'm going to stay right here. Oh, okay. Stay there. Don't, don't. I'm excited. You stay there also. Don't go away. <laughs> Oh, hi. Yeah, we're back. Part two of Max and Stacy. Hey, are you watching our show, Gonzo? It's also very good. Check it out. Hey, so what's, uh, what else is happening? So, Max, I'm going to continue on this piece about the gilet jaune and how it shows the cultural divide. We've already talked about the economic divide many, many times over the past few years about this. Uh, the gilet jaune story I'm talking about here is a spiked online interview called The Gilet Jaune Are Unstoppable. So I want to continue on the cultural divide, and this is quite important. You're seeing it emerging. You're seeing it emerging in the U.K. with Brexit, in the United States with the Trump vote, and the gilet jaune in... Uh, France, you've also seen it with Podemos and the Indignados in Spain. So you're seeing the same sort of thing, the cultural, the, the cultural uh, metropolitan elite versus the deplorables and the, the horrible people out in the north of England or the heartlands of America, that sort of cultural divide. And um, the article here interviewing the geographer Christophe uh, Guy in France, he points out that the middle class reaction to the yellow vest has been telling. Immediately, the protesters were denounced as xenophobes, anti-Semites, and homophobes. The elites present themselves as anti-fascist and anti-racist, but this is merely a way of defending their class interests. It is the only argument they can muster to defend their status, but it is not working anymore. Right. I mean, that, that, what you just said there is very interesting because it gives you it mentions all of the. Um... The 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 the, the um, you know the, the anti-racist they the, would say oh you're the an derogatory terms yeah, yeah. yeah the, the, that they use you know that we're familiar with it's like a prayer wheel you know in India I believe it, instead of going through the prayer they just spin the wheel right so here you know you have this these dog whistle words and these these words and issues that get people triggered and you know they just spin them and they're not thinking right and so they're not communicating and and like that steam kettle. It's building, right? And it's going to blow. It's blowing. The global insurrection against banker occupation is happening. I mean, it's blowing up. There's huge, huge insurrection coming. And these folks that you mentioned, they think that they can fight it, you know, the old ways of just smearing people. So why it's going to get worse before it gets better is something we've talked about on Gonzo in episode two when we interviewed Konstantin Gurdjieff. And we talked about deplatforming. So here they're saying that the cultural metropolitan elite who control our media, they are, they, you know, the, the metropolitan elite are the journalists. They are the likes of Anderson Cooper. They are the likes of Rachel Maddow. They are the likes of the guys on even Fox News, you know, who pretend to be otherwise. But they are the cultural elite. So the fact that the when ordinary people in the heartland, in the peripherique of Paris and other cities around France, the, 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 you know, the deplorable equivalent in the UK, that when they get uh, denounced as xenophobes, anti-Semites, and homophobes, 
what happens to them nowadays is they get deplatformed. They get removed from the matrix that is our society, that is our, you know, the important thing of freedom of assemble. The founding fathers of America wanted to enshrine the right to free speech, but the freedom to assemble as well, to come together as people, to sit there and speak and talk about ideas. That sort of thing, by, by removing these people from Facebook, by removing them from Twitter, by removing them from their ability to even earn money and thus assemble in, you know, in congregations around, you know, whether it's Twitter or an online platform, that, that this is only going to make it worse because the, the, the divide, that cultural divide, where when the elites look at the gilets jaunes and don't know how to respond to it, that divide where they're not communicating, it can only get worse if they're not hearing each other, if they're not able. I mean, obviously, the, the deplorables can hear what the elites say because the elites give themselves many platforms and project themselves deeper and deeper into your mind. But the, the, the deplorables, those who are outside the cities, are not able to be heard. Well, this uh, Chantar deplatforming is emerging parapassu with the surveillance state. So when you talk about you cannot exercise your right to assemble, it's true in meat space as well because mm. of the prevalence of cameras everywhere. And that's there not to secure folks, but to take away their right to assemble. So now you can't get together online and you can't get together offline. And if you have no ability to get together, you have no ability to exercise your rights, and you are living in a prison at that point. That's the difference between being in a prison and being out of a prison. But this prison is a soft totalitarianism. We're going to get into that. This is a prison that is a little bit more polite than the prisons of old. This one has transgender bathrooms. It, it allows, it doesn't mind um, all sorts of races. We're, we're a diverse population of prisoners in this uh, soft totalitarian prison because he says, now the elites are afraid. For the first time, there is a movement which cannot be controlled through the normal political mechanisms. The Gilets Jaunes didn't emerge from the trade unions or the political parties. It cannot be stopped. There is no off button. Either the intelligentsia will be forced to properly acknowledge the existence of these people or they will have to opt for a kind of soft totalitarianism. So they want to be heard. These people want to be seen. They want to be recognized. They want to be, um, you know, they want the elite to confirm that they exist and they are real people. Right, and soft totalitarianism. I mean, so we just kind of explored what that means. In other words, you're living in a prison state, but you know, you have multiple gender bathrooms and this type of thing. There's an appeasement to your social justice there warrior. There are some progressive qualities. Right. They might give you organic food in this prison. Right. Okay. So they, but are nevertheless, you know, you're you're in totalitarian light. So again, this it kind of plays into behavioral economics a lot and uh, artificial intelligence a lot. And the ability, you know, using casino technology, I call it the uh, gulag, uh, casino gulag, because in casinos, they're very good at managing your emotions to get you to gamble just beyond what you are kind of ga gamble. And by confusing you in the, in the casino, you can't get out of the casino. They use, they use uh, um, behavioral economics and intelligence, behavioral algorithms to manipulate people in the casino. So you're in this soft totalitarian state. You're not officially behind bars, but you know, you are, you know, more than 50% of the day is attached to your screen and your screen is controlling you through 
little incentives and hey you know uh robot on the shelf you know play my favorite song and oh that feels so good i'm so warm inside uh you know meanwhile your bank account's being drained by wall street and your you know your net worth is collapsing and your money's being destroyed and your, all your relationships are hardly dysfunctional and you're living in a freaking prison and you have no right to assemble no right to free speech uh but you're feeling good about it because this is extraordinarily pernicious it's subversive it's hellacious. It's the state gone amok. Well, this soft totalitarianism is seen how we're uh, shifting to that. In the old world, we have 2.2 million Americans actually in a physical prison. Those are, tend to largely be African-American and the Latino men in the American prisons here. But now the soft totalitarianism, you know, I think it's, it's kind of difficult visually to incarcerate a lot of white guys. Who's committing suicide now? Who's taking the overdose? Who's opioid addicted? It's the it's the 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 former working class people who are no longer needed. The white Americans who they wouldn't be able to sustain that private prison system on white prisoners. I don't think in this country. I think there would be an uprising just like now that there's all these white people committing suicide through opioid overdose. There's now this will to uh, do something about it and try to um, integrate these people back into society and, and maybe recognize that there's a problem. Um, so I think that's a sign of the soft totalitarianism that basically people are dying en masse, that we have an increase in mortality in America for the first time. So I think that could be a sign of this sort of like hopelessness, that that's what totalitarianism does, that there's like, basically you should just kill yourself because we don't need you, and um, other than to be terrified and scared and uh, scared of us, the government and the elite. Mesmerizing, charismatic demagogues have been with us since forever. And um, historically, they've been rooted out, whether they were Jim Jones and Jonestown and his suicide cult, uh, or whether they were uh, taking other forms. Uh, but with the technology available today, the masters of Google, Facebook, and Apple are able to put forward their imprisoning indoctrination using very subtle technological, emotional techniques that is gobbling up the population in a way that is now creating a backlash. And that backlash also goes back into history, and it pulls back um, the time uh, capsule and sees the French Revolution, sees the Russian Revolution, sees the American Revolution, and they see what an insurrection looks like, and they see who's to blame, and they see the solutions, and they seize the moment, So, and, and, and we go on from there. You know, one of the good things about being deplatformed in a way is you are removed from that surveillance grid, and while you might say that there, we are, live in a surveillance state, there are still plenty of places out in the middle of the woods or in somebody's house uh, where if you don't have an Alexa or, a, you know, a, an iPhone in your house, then you're not being eavesdropped on. So you can still meet in meet space, and you, if, you're, if they're forcing you to, I mean, that could end up being a benefit. Like I said, I don't believe we'll have a Davos in 2020 because they'll be too afraid to meet. Uh, that system will be over. It'll be, you know, I think this is the last hurrah this year, 2019. And the fact that Trump, the fact that May, the fact that Macron were unable to make it this year, I think there will be, even if they try to hold a 2020 Davos, that there will just be too much domestic unrest and unhappiness 
back at home for any of these leaders to make it next year. Well, I was impressed with the Gilets jaunes. They took out 60% of the speed cameras in France. Oh, yes. All right, so that's obviously you know what's going on. But as far as being in the woods, remember, they're rolling out G5, uh, you know, next generation uh, telecommunications technologies and putting up 20,000 satellites. So, and they'll be in proximity to everybody on planet Earth. So there will be no uh, place on planet Earth where you will not be eavesdropped by the state. Um, and, uh, but at the same time, Blockstream is putting up satellites where you can stream blocks on the Bitcoin blockchain. On the uncensorable, unconfiscatable Bitcoin blockchain, you can still right. communicate via there. Exactly. So that's where, that's hope. That's the guillotine of the 21st century is Bitcoin. And if you believe in fighting the global insurrection or being a part of the global insurrection against banker occupation, then, you know, follow Samson Mao and, uh, and, and all those folks that block stream. I mean, they're, they're the ones that are keeping it real. And I want to talk about quickly at this last bit, there's something that was in the news in the past week. Alexander Ocasio-Cortez has more Twitter power than media and establishment. Only Donald Trump has more engagement online than she does. Uh, you know, again, the, <laughs> the elites will say that Donald Trump is somehow a deplorable, he'll never win, and Beto or... I don't know, Elizabeth Warren or something could possibly beat him, but the fact is that we live on this online world at the moment that uh, the, the Davos elite sort cannot control this. And I think it's going to be interesting to watch AOC going forward. And it's a sign of the change that we're talking about, the shift, the, this cultural divide. You know, if it, a divide is a gap as well, and gaps get filled. And AOC could be the one filling this gap. Well, James Woods hates her, so she must be doing something right. Hey, we got to go! If you want to catch us on Twitter, Kaiser Report, this has been the Kaiser Report with Max Kaiser and Stacey Herbert bringing all the goodness that you love and cherish on a daily basis right into your TV screen. Until next time, bye, y'all.